0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13 this afternoon. And our main text this evening is from Exodus 28, but I want you to turn to the first part of John 13 so we can tie into the end of the sermon last week. Uh, We left off uh, there when discussing a special aspect of the high priest garments demonstrated when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And I'll dispense with most of the preliminary introductory information I trust that you know the subject. Most of you are regulars on Sunday afternoon, So the, the subject, though, is the sacrificial system, the, the, the worship in Israel, and how priests were necessary to that system. And let me just give you the first point of the discussion, so you just keep your outline going. Uh, these relate to the high priest garments. We talked about, first, the fine linen, which stands for the purity of Christ. Fine linen is the material of the undergarments, and those undergarments, material, represent two aspects of Christ's work. One has to do with the righteousness of the priest. It pertains to his personal holiness, his personal character, and it was his duty to be a righteous man, which we know is only possible by faith in Jesus Christ. Then the second is the righteousness of Christ himself. And this is the righteousness that he earned in his perfect life by his obedience to the law. And that righteousness is imputed to sinners by faith alone in Christ alone. And so thus the fine linen is a symbol of justification by Christ's righteousness. Uh, The undergarments cover nakedness and Christ's righteousness is the garment that covers the nakedness of our sin. And we're also reminded that the priest's clothing was for glory and beauty. That's what we read in uh, Exodus 28. And everything that he wore was to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now the second article of clothing is the place where we left off last time and where I want to resume. And that is the girdle. And the girdle stands for the service of Christ. Uh, The fine linen tunic that was worn by the priest, was held in place with a girdle. And if that casts a strange image in your mind, well, it's not the the girdle that we have today. This is a sash or a belt that was worn around the waist to hold the clothing in place. And this was a multicolored belt, uh, sash, and it wasn't seen um, with the outer garments of the priest. This is worn underneath, but it would be seen on the clothing of the ordinary priest. This is a girdle that stands for service and it stands for the servanthood of Christ. And in Exodus 28, verse number 3, it says it is a girdle that is of needlework. And I thought that I just might point out for a moment that needlework that, that you would see in Exodus 28 is an indication of the precision by which this uh, this belt was made, the interweaving of all the multicolored threads that made the belt. In other words, we're not talking about some discarded piece of other type of cloth or clothing that's just used for utility purposes to tie around your waist because it's not going to be seen. But this was very ornate and beautiful, and I'm sure that a good seamstress would be genuinely impressed by the abilities of these ancient people to make these fine articles of clothing. The workmanship of of it was just outstanding. And I haven't really mentioned very much about the workmen of the tabernacle, but they were two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, and God gave them multiple skills to work in gold and brass and in wood, and also to make these holy garments for Aaron and his sons. Now, if you want to read more about them, you'll find, you'll find them in Exodus 31. And they had a wide, wide array of abilities that were given by the Holy Spirit. But going on, the fine needlework was used to make this girdle, which is a symbol of the strength of the loins for service. Uh, you have read in the Scriptures many times where it says, gird up thy loins, gird up your loins. That's, that's an Old Testament expression. It's found once in the New Testament as well, used by Peter. But it means to be prepared and to be strong. For example, in Job 40 verse 7 really in the last part of Job this is used several times as the Lord speaks to Job but in Job 40 verse 7 as an example God said gird up thy loins now like a man I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me well servanthood is the purpose of John 13 that's part of what's being taught there, and I'm not going to read the entire text, Uh, we're going to come back to this, so you want to keep your finger in this passage, and we'll be in and out of this several times throughout the message, but you can look over verses 1 through 17 as I point out a few of the important points that tie this back into Old Testament worship uh, and how Jesus came to fulfill the law. And if the Bible says, and if Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, then we expect that we would see examples of that in his life. Well, he fulfilled the law by being the antitype of both the Old Testament sacrifices and the priesthood. Now, the minute details of all these specific garments worn by the priests in Exodus 28 are a part of God's law. God said, you must do it this way. You must make these things. Now, John 13 shows Christ working in servant mode on behalf of the people, and that answers to the symbolism of the girdle for service. John 13 is also the famous foot-washing incident. Before showing the disciples a picture of his death in the Lord's Supper, Jesus, in the beginning of the chapter, takes a bowl of water, and he bent down to wash the disciples' feet. Now before I continue discussion of the girdle, I thought that I might stop here for just just a few minutes to discuss with you foot washing. And I want to give you a little bit of extra information about this because tangential issues seem to be my forte. So I want to add some things for you tonight. Foot washing preceded the uh, uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, of course, became an ordinance for the church, and in the early days of America, Baptists were divided on how many ordinances that the church should have. Some believed that the church was given more than two, uh, the two that we normally consider, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and many assumed that early arguments between Baptists uh, in the first part of our country were arguments about the doctrines of grace, whether they should be Calvinistic, or whether they should be Arminian, but arguments among Baptists uh, were not centered on those things, that's not true, because finding an Arminian Baptist in America in the 17th through the 19th centuries would be like hunting elephants in downtown Santa Rosa. Uh, You can't find one, and if there was one, there'd be no way that he could hide himself, he would just stand out, you couldn't miss him. So that's not the argument. Um. Uh, between Baptists in those early centuries. You no, know, Baptists in America, Baptists in England, Baptists across Europe entirely, almost entirely believed in the doctrines of grace. And about ten minutes of reading Baptist history would discover that for you. I received a missionary application from a man who graduated from uh, Golden State uh, College in Santa Clara. And I, and I asked him some questions about this subject and I wanted to explore a little bit more about what he thought uh, concerning the questions that he answered on that questionnaire. And I suppose that he thought that he could instruct me on this subject, that he said to me that historically, Baptists were not Calvinistic. And so I thought, well, if he's ignorant about that, then how many other things is he ignorant on? So I just filed the application away and said, I don't really need to bother with that. But the disagreements between early Baptists in America were not over those issues. Uh, They were centered on three areas. First, should we use confessions of faith? Secondly, should we support missions? And then thirdly, how many ordinances did God or did Christ give the church? Now, almost all Baptists favored the 1740 Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which affirms the doctrines of grace that we teach here And also what most Baptists believe about the ordinances, that there are only two ordinances, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. But back in those days, in the frontier days of our country, uh, and away from the cities, there arose another faction of Baptists that were called the Separates. And they were led by a man named Shubal Stearns, who was converted under the ministry of George Whitfield during the First Great Awakening. Well, Stearns agreed... With uh, Whitfield's soteriology, that's uh, his affirming of the doctrines of grace, but he disagreed with what Whitfield taught on infant baptism that was practiced in Whitfield's congregational church. And rather, uh, Stearns believed in credo baptism, and so he became a Baptist. And I remind you once again, credo baptism means a baptism of believers. Well, Stearns settled in uh, central North Carolina at a time of great revival. And the Lord used Stearns in, in a mighty way to see many new churches established, just an entire network of churches that were established. And following Whitfield's soteriology, because he believed that Whitfield was right about that, about salvation, that put him squarely into the camp of the regular Baptist who supported the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. But Stearns disagreed with the confession on this issue, and that is, are there more than two ordinances for the church? And so instead of two, he and his churches argued that there were as many as nine ordinances. And so they had baptism, they had the Lord's Supper, they had the love feast, the laying on of hands, anointing the sick, the right hand of fellowship, the kiss of charity, devoting children, and then finally this one, washing feet. Now, over time, six of those fell out of favor, leaving only three. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot-washing. And today, almost 300 years later, there are Baptist churches in Appalachia that still practice foot-washing, uh, coming from that tradition of Schubelsterns and those uh, separate Baptist churches. Now, that's a little bit of historical information for you if you, don't, if, if you like Baptist history, and um, whenever I see this passage of John thirteen, that history always comes to my mind. That there are some still, still some people who believe that uh, foot washing is uh, a part, uh, is one of the ordinances of the church. Well, John thirteen is a demonstration of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament type of the priests for service. The disciples were not to be lords over the people, but they were called to be servants. Now, these were men that were called and would hold the highest offices in the church, but they were to remember that they were only servants. You see, the Lord's church is not about rank. It's not about personal prestige. It's not about potentates and pontiffs and popes and applause. It's like the priest of the Old Testament. And like the disciples in the New Testament, we are to be servants. Servants. And so Jesus said to be great in His kingdom is not to be a mighty king, it is to be a lowly servant. Now someday they would, they would reign as kings. Jesus promised that. He said, you're going to reign over the tribes of Israel. But that time was not then. And that time is not now. It's not now in our church, in this time, for us to be the head of things and To have people recognize us, but we are to be ministers. And as I said last week, ministers, that simply means servants, and that's what this is about, servanthood. Well, washing feet is the most menial task of a servant. That was very humbling. And there was nobody that wanted the humiliation of that work. Now, especially the great rabbis, they would never think of doing it. And when Jesus, who the people called rabbi, the one they called teacher and a master in Israel assume this position of a servant and wash feet, that's shocking. And it's especially shocking when he washed the feet of rough fishermen, as most of the disciples were, and think about this, he washed the feet of Matthew, a publican, a tax collector. That's a scandalous thing to be done. That's beyond what anyone thought that a person should have to do. Only the very lowest of servants would do that. But Jesus said, you must be willing, you must be a humble servant in order to be great in his kingdom. And further he said, if you're not willing to do this, then you can't stay with me. This is what my ministry is about. Now this whole thing of washing feet and all this thing about service piqued Peter. And he promised that and protested that if getting feet washed was a necessary thing, and that's what it takes to have part with Jesus. And he insisted, well, then I need to have my whole body washed. Just let Jesus wash me all over. And that was a grand gesture. And I'm sure that Peter thought, well, that's the thing to do. This shows how much I am in love with Christ. But he mistook the meaning. Because there was a difference in the meaning of washing the feet and washing the body. But at this point, Peter's not very much of a theologian doesn't understand those things. So what Jesus was teaching was progressive sanctification, while Peter's comment confused the meaning of the gesture with regeneration. And without going into the details, Jesus said that those that are regenerated don't need to be washed again. They're justified. They're cleansed forever. They don't need to be cleansed from anything but their daily sins. And so the dirty feet... That's a symbol of daily defilement, of walking in a world that's full of sin. And it represents those temptations that we each fall into every single day, and we need to have those sins cleansed in order for us to keep in fellowship with Christ. Well, there's much to be said on that subject, but the purpose tonight is not to exposit the doctrinal implications of John 13. But what I want to show you is how that foot washing, this foot washing incident represented the priest in the the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Now, if Jesus came to fulfill the law, John 13 shows us in part how he did that. Now, let's go to the Old Testament, if you will. As I said, you still want to hold on to John 13. We'll be back. And uh, I want you to look in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 28 describes the clothing... And then Moses looked deeper into the law that God gave him on Mount Sinai. And there he found all these things about making the furnishings for the tabernacle, all the attendant articles of furnishers, furnishings, that, uh, furnishings that he would need for their worship. Most of those things, or some of them at least, we'll discuss in conjunction with the articles of clothing. All of these aspects of worship fit together like an intricate puzzle. But to tie the girdle and service and sanctification, all of these things together, I want you to look at verses 17 to 21 in chapter chapter 30. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burnt offering made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations." Outside the tabernacle entrance, between the brazen altar and the door of the tabernacle, there was a wash basin. There was a large laver that was made of brass. Now, I have an artist rendering of that that I want to to show you. And this brazen uh, uh, laver is the place where the priest washed his hands and his feet. Now, the brazen altar that was on the other side of this is the place of sacrifice. That's the place where the animals are killed, the blood was collected, and then the animal was cut up and then hoisted up on the altar to be burned. That altar is a symbol of God's judgment, a symbol of the place where sinners are justified with God. That's a picture of the cross, where the judgment of God was poured out on Christ and where He made atonement for our sins to reconcile us to God. But when the priest was through at that altar with the sacrifice, he wasn't quite through. There was more service to be done on the inside of the tabernacle. Blood must be sprinkled, incense must be burned, and so on. And just as Christ's work was not finished at the cross, neither was the priest's work finished at the altar. Now I want you to understand this statement, Christ's work was not finished at the cross. I don't mean that payment for sin was, wasn't finished at the cross, because it was. But we understand this, that Christ is alive, and that Christ continues to work for us. Is that true? Well, of course that is. He continues with intercession for His people. And the priests must do the same for the people at the tabernacle. Other works of Christ still need to be pictured. And so the priests made the sacrifices, When he was finished cutting up all those animals and all the blood that's involved and picking up those pieces and putting them on the altar, what do you think the priest looked like? Oh, he's bloody. He's splattered with blood, his feet and all about him. He is in no condition to enter the holy sanctuary. And so before he could, he must stop at this brazen altar, or this brazen laver rather, and wash his hands and his feet. Washing is a part of the ritual, It's a part of the ritual of daily sanctification, just as washing the feet in John 13 is about sanctification. And if the priest did not do that, then he would be struck dead. Well, these harsh penalties, those aren't new to us. We've studied the tabernacle sacrifices. We know that God was very strict about this. It demonstrates God's Strictness that he wants to be worshipped in his way. Christ is pictured. And these pictures can't be altered by the mistakes of men trampling on the holiness of God and destroying the types of Christ. We know that one mistake by Moses, striking that rock a second time, kept him out of the promised land. Why? Because that disobedience destroyed a type of Christ. 1 Corinthians clearly says that rock was Christ. Now Moses was a great man, no doubt. But not even Moses could mess with worship. It must be done God's way. Now we see how Exodus 30 was fulfilled by Jesus in John 13. The priest and the disciples, they are God's chosen men. Now although chosen, they're still men and they're still sinners. They walked in the world They're tempted just like we're tempted. They sin just like we sin. See, maintaining clean hands and a clean mind is very difficult. I'm called to be the pastor, but I'm aware every day of this, of how I fall short. I stand as a sinner among sinners. There's none of us that's fully sanctified in holiness. We have the fallen nature. We haven't gotten rid of that, so sin gets to me just as it does to you. So what must we do about that sin? Well, every day we must wash our hands and our feet. Our hands and our feet are the instruments of service, and symbolically, we must be cleansed before we can do the Lord's work. James four: seven and eight, "Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and He will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Well, how do we do that? There's no labor for us to wash in. But instead we have this, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what Jesus showed Peter. We don't need to be converted again. We only need to have that daily defilement washed off So we'll be ready to serve. Now, let's return to the foot washing at the supper. I hope the wheels are turning in your mind and you're thinking about, well, how do we see the symbolism in the supper? How would we see that today? Well, each time before we observe the supper, I call for a time of silent prayer and confession of sin. We bow our heads, we pray, and we ask God to remove all of our sins so that we come to Him with clean hearts. And we honor the holiness of the Savior. And so, in a manner of speaking, that is our foot washing. Do you understand? We don't have a bowl. There's no water. There's no brazen labor. We don't have an extra ordinance. All we need to do is to come to the Lord in repentant prayer. And we're washed from that daily defilement. Well, there's another wonderful type that's expressed in the labor. The labor holds water, and that represents the way that we're cleansed. Now what, what in the Scriptures does water stand for? Well, I hope you know, Bereans should know this, because our church makes this the emphasis. This is the most prominent part of our worship, and what is that? It is the Word of God. Ephesians 5 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, you and I are the priest of Berean Baptist Church. This is central to us, the word and the preaching of the word. That's central to us because the Bible teaches that the word and Christ are the same that we're cleansed through the instrumentation of the Word. That's how Christ cleanses us, and we have that washing by the Word from that defilement that sticks to us every day as we go through this life. So if you're a Christian who doesn't stop at the Word to worship and to wash, then you're like a priest that walked by the labor, not thinking that I need to clean myself up before I go into the tabernacle. And so without hesitation, without fear of being proved wrong, a church that does not emphasize the Word and use the Word and live by the Word is in the same danger as a priest who failed to stop at the labor. The unwashed are unfitted for service. Like the Laodicean church of Revelation 3, Christ says, I will spew them out. I just talked with someone today who told me, that uh, the last churches that he visited, he didn't bother to take a Bible because they didn't use one. How can you have a church that's fitted for the service of the Lord? How could you be the church that I talked about this morning, a Philadelphia church, if you don't have the Word? That's impossible. You can't be clean without the Word. You've got to wash in the Word. Well, someday we'll come back to that brazen labor. I'll explain more of the typology. But I've added that for now just to show you the service of the priest. Now back to our main point, the girdle is about service. The priest is a servant of the people. Now think of this again. The priest is dazzling when decked out in his full attire. Light reflected off of the clothing, off of the gold, off of the jewels. And what more glorious display of typology of the beauty of Christ can be found in any of this than in, the, in that clothing? But for all of the expense and the beauty of it, the priest was still a servant. And this is what Jesus did. He, he laid aside the splendor of heaven. He put aside his garments of glory. Oh, he was clothed in light. But because he had a servant heart for his people, he gave all that up and descended from above. And he condescended to become a servant and to be obedient to the death of the cross. Now, many high priests in Israel abused the position. They separated from the people, not because they were separated because they were sinners, the people were sinners and they weren't. No, they were sinners when they said that they weren't. But they separated themselves from the people and they went into their ivory towers to sit as lords. But Jesus, the great high priest, in his humility was a glaring contrast to pompous high priests like Annas and Caiaphas. Oh, they boasted they were Moses' servants. They said they kept the law, and yet Jesus said, Well, you heap heavy burdens on other people that you're not willing to bear yourself. Oh, they put on their splendid garments, but they didn't know anything of the spirit of the law. But conversely, here stands Jesus in front of them. He was disheveled from the harsh treatment of his arrest. He'd been struck in the face. He was dirty and in servants' clothing. Philippians describes him well who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so with foot washing and living an austere life, what did Jesus teach them? Well, let's go to Matthew 20. Here we find another example of servanthood. In this chapter, in verse 20, James and John's mother came to him with a request for her two precious darling boys. They'd heard him speak of the kingdom and how that he would be a king. And since they knew Jesus well and they were Jesus' friends, they thought, well, we're on the ground floor. We're ready to step up and take our place in his kingdom. Now, James and John thought what they might do was leapfrog over the rest of the disciples if they could just get to Jesus first and they can get their spots and secure the spots where they want to be. And which shows, of course, that humility is not their strong point. But perhaps wanting to appear to be too humble to ask Jesus themselves, they asked their mother to do it for them. Now, you'll notice in John's gospel, he doesn't mention this incident. Would you? I mean, why you wouldn't, would you, if you're a man, do you want your mother to plead for you? But James and John's mother went to Jesus and she said, I need a spot for my two boys in your kingdom. Let them have the favored places right next to you, one on the right hand and one on the left. And Jesus said, Are you sure? Do you know what you're asking? This isn't fun and games. Death is happens to those who take the highest positions in my kingdom. Now, he tried to teach them. This whole thing about being a Christian is not, let's take over the world and let's show everybody who's boss. But this is what he taught. In in verse number 25, Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And that they are... They that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." Now, when he stood before Caiaphas and was judged by that wicked priest who was sitting in his high priestly robes, his beautiful robes, here is Jesus, the real biblical Old Testament high priest of the law, and it's Jesus who said, I came to be a servant. He came to minister, not to be ministered to. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Now, to finish the lesson, here's the application that we learn, or what we get from these outstanding passages of Scripture and these demonstrations, what we learn is our willingness to serve. If you read this material about foot washing and a brass labor and multiple types of service and fail to see this, that they are intended to elicit a response from every one of us about being servants, then what have we accomplished? Nothing more than James and John Who stupidly had their mother go ask Jesus for special positions in the kingdom. Now, if Christ were here today with us personally and visibly, He is here, but not in His person and not visibly. But if He was here and we could watch His life daily and we could see the love and compassion that He showed when He walked this earth, would it be said that you and I are like Him? Would Santa Rosans be like those in Antioch? And they would call us Christians. I'm afraid most of us would not make that grade. If people watched us closely on the other six days of the week, would they know that we are blood-washed believers in Christ? Who's fooling whom? Are, Are we fooling ourselves? Are we fooling other people? Many of us are... Sardian Christians with a reputation of being alive, but were actually dead. Now, let's go back to John 13 again. Jesus said, I have given you an example. In the 13th verse, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Now they called him Master and Lord, and that's good. That's good. They recognize his supremacy. He's not just superior. He's infinitely superior. The servant... Jesus said, is never going to be higher than his Lord. And if they recognized that and, and knew that they wouldn't be, and they believed that, then they accepted Christ's work or his worth, how, how can they not be willing to do what Christ did? Now we need to wrap our heads around that. Are we elitist because we believe that God chose us and not others? Does that criticism stick to us? Would we rather just sit around and argue our doctrine? Or live by that doctrine. So how do we diffuse the criticism that we talk big but do very little? The only way we can is to reach out and help somebody. To bend. To go down low and do a servant's task and wash feet. Now since we've remodeled the Grant Evans Conference Room, I've done a lot of thinking about Grant Evans. It's sort of been on my mind. I'm thankful for... Matt and his family made many trips up here from San Rafael and took over that job and made sure that it got completed. I'm grateful for Eric and Lucy and the men who came over and got that conference table together and put all of that in there. And if you haven't been in to see it, you need to stop by there. They've they've just done a wonderful job of getting all of that done. And just to have the people of God, no matter what the need is, a job that needs to be done a project that needs to be completed. It's its a blessing to a pastor and to the entire church to have people that were, are just willing to do that and take their time to do it. But as we've done that, the, the remodeling had made me think of Grant. And in more than 40 years of ministry, I've known a lot of people, and Grant has stood stood out among the very best of people that I've ever known. Uh, I, I, I wish that some of you that didn't know him, that you could have met him. This place, this building in his retirement was his labor of love. I mean, this was his this was his place. He took care of everything here. But after Grant became sick and near the end of his life, when Parkinson's disease had ravaged his body and he was unable to take care of himself, Marlene was unable to help him and she had her own problems, and they he just couldn't take care of the necessities of life. And it was in that time that men of our church stepped up and one of them told me, Grant has done so much for us, what can we do for him? And so some of our men would go to his house after work and they would stay late to give him a shower, clean him up, change his diapers, and do servant's work. Some of those things I don't think that I could do. I couldn't do it if I had to, I think. Some of the things they did was some of the worst that can be done. And it wasn't feet they washed, that'd be easy by comparison, And I think that if someone were to come in and watch that and see what they did, I think they would say, those men are Christians. Those men are Christians. Who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, I seriously doubt that it's going to be pastors, especially if they're like me. Oh, the greatest ones are the ones that obey Jesus in this. They are servants. Servants that are willing to do the most humiliating of work. And doing it to show the love of Christ for someone. You know, I, I've had people come to me and say, well, give me a job to do in the church. And many times they have in their mind, the only thing they want to do is teach class. Or they, they want something that, you know, gets their name in the bulletin. Something that um, gets some recognition to go along with it so people will know what they've done. But I'm so happy when... Somebody comes and says, I don't care what it is. Put me anywhere you want. I I just want to do something for the church. And and I'm not demeaning any work that we do around the church, but there there are men who you know, spend their time on Saturdays while the rest of us may be relaxing and they're cleaning up the yard, mowing the grass and uh, taking care of things around the building and things that other people don't want to touch. They'll do it. And that's that's their labor of love. They do that because they're servants. They're, they're doing something for Christ when they do that. When they do it for the Lord's body, for the church, they do that for Christ. Jesus said, when you've done it to these, you've done it to me. And, and they're servants. After the, the hurricane in Houston, uh, there were some... I saw this news report. There were some Christian men that were looking for people to help after that hurricane. And... There was a group of them that came floating down through a neighborhood in a boat looking for people to help. And these men were calling out, and they were seeing that they could find somebody to help, and they would tell the people, we are the hands of Christ that have come to help you. Well, there was a a man who received help from them, and he said, how am I ever going to repay you? And they said, oh, you don't have to. That's not what we said. We said, we are the hands of Christ to help you. Those are men that were just servants. They weren't trying to get on TV. They weren't looking for TV cameras to follow them. They're just servants and saw people that had a need and they met that need. And they were people who heard Jesus say, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things that are commanded you, say that we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. We've done that which was our duty to do. That is to be servants. Whatever we're called on to do. Every servant doing the most menial task is great in God's kingdom. And we would just learn that. We would, You know what Jesus said about that? If you do these things, happy are ye. The happiest Christians are the ones that bend. The ones that don't have to You know, the one who wants recognition all the time is the one who never gets enough. And so he's not happy because he never gets enough recognition what he thinks he deserves. But you take that servant who bends low and does that menial task, he's happy with anything that he gets from the Lord. The satisfaction of knowing he has served Christ and served God's people. That's what it means to be a servant. I want to ask you to ask yourself, are you a Christian? And when I ask you that... uh, I want to ask it in this way. Did you name yourself a Christian? Is that how you got the name? Did you name yourself a Christian? Or did somebody else name you? The highest opinion that you get of self may be the one that you give. And that's not good enough. I hope that people see Jesus in you. Be a servant. Obey Him as a servant to be great in the kingdom of God. Blessed be God. For Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today once again, as we said this morning, recognizing your holiness, your greatness, the worth that you have. And Lord, recognizing that, we don't understand as angels didn't understand, as nobody understood, as high priests didn't understand. Nobody understood how you did what you did to become a servant. To wash feet. You're so worthy and yet you wash feet. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to to do the same. To follow that example. To be Christians. Just Christians. And that's what it means. Just Christians. That means to be a minister. To be a servant. Help us to be that. We thank you, Lord, for our church. For our people. And these here tonight are... Many, many of them are the ones that do the work of the church. Everything that's called on to be done, they'll do it. No complaints. Just let me do something to serve the Lord. Let me be a servant. And we thank you for it, Lord. Bless our people. Help us every day to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church,